There is a dichotomy. I mean, we we all know that information is being tracked as we kind of do anything online. And yet there is this notion that in some ways a conversation with a machine is the most private conversation that you could have. As it relates to the work here, the thing that really came to the fore was that people felt like even if there was tracking going on, that the machine wasn't going to judge them. It seems like we're wandering between two worlds. Modernity as we knew it is passing away, and the next world, full of uncertainty, is yet to be born. Like the poet Dante, we find ourselves in a darkened wood, struggling to know how to think and how to live. Virgil guided Dante's journey through darkness with the light of reason. But then Beatrice illuminated his path to paradise with Christian revelation. Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, where Christian faith and reason illuminate the best of academic thinking and research. How should we think and live in this time between worlds? At the Beatrice Institute, we take our bearings from the good, the true, and the beautiful. I'm Gretchen Huizinga. I'm a research fellow at AI and Faith and a principal investigator with the Beatrice Institute's project, Being Human in an Age of Artificial Intelligence. What makes humans special? And what does it mean to flourish on the frontier of a technological future? I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Shannon Betcher to the show today. Shannon is a former manager at a little software company in Seattle called Microsoft. He worked in both the Office and Windows groups and ended in Microsoft Research, bringing innovations and inventions to market. He's now consulting for labs, working on AI and large language models. But my connection to Shannon is that he recently earned a PhD his at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, and his dissertation was on artificial intelligence and spirituality. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Shannon Betcher, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So you and I share a similar story in that we both did PhDs after a significant time in the workplace. I'll say later in life, but mine was way later in life than yours was. But we're both interested in the intersection of AI and religion. So just as we start off here, how did this particular path unfold for you and what prompted your transition? Yeah, it's really a pretty organic and meandering story. It's not going to, it's going to sound more linear than it really was, but, you know, it really started for for me, with my family, my wife and I, we both had big careers in software, and we got to the point where uh, one of us either needed to take some time away and, and focus on raising our three boys, or we needed to hire like a second nanny to, to, <laughs> to be with them on uh, nights and weekends and such. And so uh, we have three boys, and they were sort of in their, their preteen years, and I thought it was a great opportunity to spend time with them being a dad and focusing on that lead parent role. And one of the things that was important in that time for me was to teach them about world religions, teach them about all different kinds of perspectives. My wife and I grew up Catholic. We did not raise our kids uh, in the religion, but we thought it was important for them to have a broad perspective. And uh, so first I needed to learn myself and I started looking for a master's uh, degree program where I could learn about world religions and how to teach them. And uh, I found that program at University of Warwick and I did that uh, as like a three-year program. And Warwick is known in the UK for developing the 
compulsory curriculum that they have there um, where all students learn about world religions as they grow up. And when I finished up that degree, I looked ahead to what was next and uh, my, my kids were still not grown and I wanted to keep with them. And this idea of studying and going to school as they did was, was really, was a great connection for us. And uh, also in my search for a master's degree program, I had met Eric Stoddart at St. Andrews and found him to be a brilliant and fascinating person and sort of filed that away as an opportunity for later to perhaps engage. And so I started brainstorming and working with him on ideas for a dissertation. And uh, that's, that's what led me to, to the work that I did here. So Shannon, your dissertation research centers around concepts of religion, spirituality, and artificial intelligence. So before we get into the weeds, could you briefly, in academic terms, operationalize those terms for us as you define them for use in your study? Yeah, this is really important as far as how I looked at the the way that we'll talk about later, how information becomes knowledge. For me, spirituality is rooted in the individual. It's about how individuals make meaning out of their encounters in life and the information that they encounter there. And so influences can come from many places, from lived experience, from friends, from family. Uh, and this is really a very much a religious studies view of spirituality, where there's influences from sociology, anthropology, history, and philosophy. When I talk about religion in my thesis, it's rooted in the idea of a group um, where the group is providing the structure. And oftentimes that will come through you know, sacred texts, historical contexts, systematics, practical theology. And for uh, religion, the sort of spirituality and religion, the Venn diagram is almost completely overlapped. <laughs> And that's sort of the the root or the desired root of of what spirituality is. Religion. Okay. So, what about defining artificial intelligence? Yeah, this is an area too that I think is you know it's debated, and so it's important to have a clear vision of of what we're talking about. For artificial intelligence, I'm really focused on the idea of a machine appearing to be intelligent to a human. So it's really rooted in this idea of human-machine communication and the perception of the human uh, of that machine. And so Poole and Mackworth are, are you know, that's, that's one source of definition. And basically, if the machine acts intelligently and is seen as being intelligent by the human, it's intelligent in that context. Another definition that's helpful for me in this study is by Russell and Norvig. And here it's really when a machine is mimicking the way of thinking or communicating that a human would. And so those things together come to bear where if a human is, is interacting with a machine, and my, most of my research, the experiments were focused on that exchange between a human and machine, if the human was feeling that the exchange was intelligent, then it was intelligent or it was meaningful for them. Okay. The, the whole idea of artificial intelligence is kind of founded on that, that human intelligence can be so precisely described and, and coded that a machine could think and learn and feel like a human. But for the purposes of, of your study, it didn't matter whether that was true or not. It just mattered if people perceived it as such. Is that fair? Right. That's that's correct. Yeah. It was really, um, you know, I was looking at the potential for 
these interactions to have an impact on the way that people made meaning and and sort of developed their spirituality. And so for me, it was really focused on that that perception right. um, from the human. Okay, that's cool. Well, the central hypothesis of your study is interesting to me, and that is that AI has the potential to play a significant role, these are your words, in the distribution of religious information and its transformation into religious or spiritual knowledge. So that's a really interesting segue. So first, how do you differentiate religious information from religious knowledge? What's the the transfer there? And then second, I know this is a two-part question, and I do this all the time, and it's quite annoying sometimes, but... First, how do you differentiate the two? Second, why does it matter what role AI plays in the distribution and transformation of these things? Yeah, the the first question, uh, the difference between information and knowledge in my definition here is that information becomes knowledge when a person makes decisions or takes action based on information they receive. And so you could say there's different ways of looking at this. You could say it's... Um, making meaning to, you know, translating and putting things into action that you hear. So, you know, we're all in a process of filtering and and more and more, right? (laughs) Uh, So much information is coming at us. We need to sort of pick and choose what's meaningful, what we put to use in our lives. And so for me, when we think about religious information and for the study, it was focused on answers to existential and ontological questions, sort of the, the big questions, you know, meanings of life and these these kinds of things. And here it's about, you know, the answers that people received and the information that they received. Did it, were they making meaning from it? Were they um, showing signs of, of potentially taking action based on the experiences that we had? And that was the, those were the clues that we were on the road of information turning into knowledge. Okay. Well, and I want to stop there for a second before I have you go on and say, why does it matter? I kind of feel like I know why it matters. (laughs) I mean, that's the thing. Anytime we take information, what do we do with it? You know, it's like, you can't say, I don't know anymore, right? It's the, it's the big thing about, you know, when you find new evidence of something, you no longer are off the hook for not doing something about it. But on that note, there's kind of a, I like your Venn diagram thing. This is sort of a a middle phase of knowledge that moves into what I would call faith and action or wisdom and action. How would you say that knowledge could be acting? I think knowledge is actionable, but maybe not enough to put you over into the, I'm going to put my faith in this. Do you have any differentiation there? Well, for me, it was really about observed behaviors. And so if people made statements like, based on this interaction I just had with a machine, I am going to have a deeper conversation with my family about what we believe and what we practice and what we do, or I really need to go back to church and spend some time there and get in touch with this, or I have this has stimulated bigger questions for me and I need to go find the answers to them in some way. And we'll get into sort of how memories played a role here as well for people. But those were the things that I was looking for. You know, this study was, you know, these are sort of finite amounts of time that you have with people. And so it's hard to, to say, Hey, I witnessed the transformation of, you know, data to information, to knowledge, to wisdom, all in that, in that short period of time. So I was really looking for clues that I guess that 
the information or the data that was exchanged made it through the filter for people and that they were going to, they felt inspired in some way to take action. And for me in this study and in this format, um, in the, the methodology, that's what I was looking for. And I wasn't, you know, I didn't this, you know, we will talk later about like, what, what could we do, you know, after this and, yeah. and, you know, something longitudinal where you check back in with people over time to see, Hey, did this actually become, did you do those things you said you were right. going to do? And then did that have an impact on your life and did it transform into wisdom? So, you know, I think I was able to witness some of the beginning, like formative stages of that transformation. And I wasn't, it was sort of out of scope to look to the wisdom end, but I do believe you're right. Like, I think, you know, there will be, especially just to a lot of the questions that were asked here and answered, you know, people, they might act a certain way in their, in their life. They might, might impact their interactions, but you're asking a deeper question, which is what about their faith long-term, what their wisdom, their, their perspective, uh, like throughout their life and beyond. And so that was something that was out of scope. Um, that's always a convenient thing for, uh, yeah. for you to do defending your dissertation. But yeah. I would say, yeah, I was really looking for an earlier stage sign because, because there's a real possibility that people would have rejected this and said, this is just gibberish. This is silly. Why would I talk to a machine about these kinds of things? Or why would I talk to, uh, why would I look for the answers to these kinds of questions in this way and, and with this technology? And that kind of gets to the second part of your question, which is, you know, why would it matter? And, you know, I was very open to the idea that it might not, that people might say, this is not like, this is not how I want to look for my spirituality. This is not something that would, that is sort of compatible with my religion or the way that I want to think about religion. And that was definitely a valid answer, you know, in the, in the research findings, if, if that were to come yeah. to bear. I, I love the fact that you note that it's one of those things you can say in a defense. That was not the scope of my, and you have to do a doable size of research for your dissertation that can springboard into other things. One of them might have been thinking about a longitudinal study coming back to these people in 10 years and saying, but th- this actually speaks to an interesting role. And I think this is what you're exploring and we'll get into this in a bit, but it's sort of like, how could the machine step into the role of pastor or priest or spiritual guide and maybe expand the scope or scale of the ability to propagate religious information that might become? And then if the AI is effective enough or efficacious, as they say in in religious circles, you could say it's it's a good thing to use. Talk for a second about what you referred to as the duality between religious thinkers and technical thinkers, and that there's a lot of HCI, human-computer interaction research, but religion's excluded from that stuff. Yeah, I, I think it's probably not excluded by design, but that was sort of the the opening, you know, in, for my contribution, I felt in, in this dissertation and this research was that there's a lot written and, a, and I relied a lot on scholars in the space of human machine communication, you know, things that explore anthropomorphism of machines that explore sort of how people tend to be deferential towards machines and the internet. But a lot of that content, like when they did their research, had to do with news and driving directions <laughs> and weather and like, you know, uh, you know, uh, facts like, like sort of on Wikipedia and these kinds of, these kinds of uh, more secular topics. And so they didn't explore what happens when you inject religious information, spiritual information, answers to existential questions, you know, things that are, you know, meaning of life types of questions for people. And so 
there was a duality in that on the theological side. And when I looked at those scholars, there's a lot of exploration and research around how do people form their worldviews? Where does it come from? Uh, what are the different you know voices or influences that affect them? and develop them. And in that body of work, technology was often left out and certainly artificial intelligence uh, was, was left out. And if it was mentioned, oftentimes it was mentioned in a way that was sort of uh, prescriptive on excluding that. Like, let's not pay attention to sources that aren't from our from our officials, that aren't from our normative values, that aren't from our sacred texts. Um, and in a sense, there was this debate that I explore among the scholars about, you know, whether, you know, you should exclude all of these, the new information coming in uh, from technology uh, versus, you know, looking deep into it and and having it be a potential uh, source of influence. Well, you actually reference kind of what you're talking about is theological reflection on that side of things. And you reference the four voices of theological reflection, but these are ways in which we conceptualize and internalize our own religious beliefs. So tell us what they are and why they're important reference points for your research. Yeah, this is work that came out of a group called Theological Action Research, and it's often credited to Helen Cameron. I think she's, it's Cameron et al. So there's a group that works together on this, but they were exploring how, how churches, how organizations, how do they create their worldviews and implement them? And so they outlined uh, four voices, a normative voice, they called it, which had to do with sacred texts and official texts, you know, from the religion. They had a, a voice called formal voice, which is, you know, that from a religious officials. So this would be priests or rabbis or imams or monks or gurus interpreting those texts or the canon or the whatever the rules of the of the group are. And again, this is all very much group-based mm-hmm. or religion-based uh, in my definition. So you have normative and formal, which tend to be sort of the the top-down hierarchy within these organizations. And then there were two that were focused on group dynamics. One is they called the espoused voice, which is how a group views itself and views its own spirituality. So this would be, um, I would be thinking about what does it mean to be a good person? And what are the the members of my religious community, you know, my church or mosque or whatever it is, like how, how do we together interpret Mm -hmm. the normative and formal influences and believe, you know, ourselves as, as a group. And then the fourth voice is an operant. They call it an operant voice, which is, you know, really the observable practices of the group. And so this kind of, this is where maybe you could say it's similar in a way between the, the information and the knowledge. It's sort of this, this transition point where, okay, you've got all of these, you know, different voices talking at you and here's how you actually act. Right. And, and so those are the four voices, normative, formal, espoused, and operant. And, you know, in one way of thinking, you could say, hey, maybe there's uh, another voice that could be represented by technology or AI, you know, where we're get lot people are getting lots and lots of information and it tends to be, you know, in a secular context, but certainly religious information is accessible in that way. And perhaps in the future will be, it will be, um, you know, pushed to people in a way. So that's, that's one way to view it is, Hey, maybe there's a fifth voice and it's, and it could be technology or AI. 
you know, I would think that the ARCS group, they would probably, they would argue that, you know, the espouse and you could basically plant anything in the espouse and operant voices. So you could say, hey, part of the operant voice and what the community thinks about itself or sees itself is influenced by these external forces that could be, you know, you know, any number of technologies. And uh, so that they might argue that it would be housed within like an operant voice. Right. And I didn't so much argue that there's a separate voice, like there should be a fifth voice added into the mix here. But certainly that what I observed was that there was the opportunity for influence in this way. And if you just look at kind of where people spend their time uh, relative, you know, to consuming information or being in a religious context, that it, it most certainly would have have an effect were there to be religious information coming through this channel. Right. I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier about the broad net you laid out for the work that you brought into your research. And it was from sociologists to technologists to futurists and theologians and so on. Why did you cast such a wide net and how did these voices uh, from different disciplines inform the overall direction of your research on AI and religion? Yeah. I mean, again, this was like a more of an organic process than a, than a very kind of thoughtful one. I, you know, I, I just, you would, I would read about different concepts and, and then of course, you know, you would see new thinkers injected as, as you go. And I just kind of kept pulling on those threads and looking and looking and looking. And I think as a student, you know, you're, as a researcher, you're always, at least for me, I'm always feeling like, well, somebody's certainly written about this before or some, you know, this has been done or, you know, I, I definitely need to be on top of anything new that's coming out or, uh, and so a little bit, you know, I got, I sort of geeked out in this area <laughs> in, in my dissertation in terms of really pulling in lots and lots of different thinkers from lots of different disciplines, maybe just because I was searching for, you know, someone to have really looked into this or, or to have had strong opinions in one way or another. And so you're right. I mean, it was a pretty wide ranging set of scholars. Uh, you know, my literature view is, you know, really a, a significant, you know, you could say it was even kind of bloated in terms of like the rest of the, the paper. But for me, it was, you know, this was a work of sort of passion and curiosity for me. And so like that that part of learning from others was was really really important and i think what it did is it brought together you know it, it really exposed for me like the different kinds of thinking that you would see from a uh, you know, religious studies, which is a wide ranging discipline anyway, like, you know, from sociologists to anthropologists to historians and the like, and to, you know, the theological side where that tended to be a little bit more of a, uh, I don't want to say insular, but a little bit more concise in terms of like the, the, the thinking and it's particularly around theological reflection and, and technology in particular. And so for me, it was, it was, interesting to look at those different influences. You know, it came with a set of assumptions that I was able to sort of bring to the research where, you know, most of the time, like my assumptions were, here's some thinking from the sociological side of things and anthropological side of things that people have found relative to technology. Do these apply when religious information is involved? Here's a set of assumptions that are about 
theological reflection and how people build a view of their their own theology, how they do theology, essentially. Um, And does that hold true when those influences are coming from technology Mm. or, or artificial intelligence? And so... It kind of set up this duality that we were talking about earlier, where it really brought together for me a lot of, of, of different ways of thinking and looking at human interaction and human and how people do theology. Yeah, I feel like that's really important because I wouldn't call it bloated. I think that's funny, <laughs> but it's not exclusive. And as you referred to earlier, sometimes people in their various lanes can say, I don't want to think about what those people think about. We need to stick to our guns and and do what we do. But if you look at people like Jacques Ellul, who was a devout Christian, he actually says the two most important influences in, in his life were Jesus and Karl Marx. And that's an interesting dichotomy there, because a lot of times Christians would say, well, Marxism is about godlessness, so we can't even entertain any of the things that Karl Marx wrote about, vice versa. So I, I really like that you've that you've taken that approach, Shannon. Let's talk about the structure of your study for a second, because that is really interesting, what you did with your participants. Tell us how you interrogated the influence of AI on religious information and knowledge. For me, it started with you know a little bit of that earlier uh, work that I had done in my master's program about how do you teach kids about religion? How do how do you teach uh, about the big questions that they have? And you know, I started with this this list of big questions that most religions you know address or try to try to address and. So this can be, you know, everything from individual personal meaning and happiness, you know, how do you achieve happiness? How, what are my uh, life-oriented commitments to society and the world we live in? You know, why is there evil and suffering? What can I do to help others in future generations? Why are humans special, among other things? Interpersonal relationships, how do I know, you know, right and wrong? How should I treat other people? And then transcendent sort of otherworldly questions, you know, how did this all come about? Is there a God? Is there something bigger than all of us? What happens when we die? Uh, And so these were at the core of, you know, let's assume, you know, there's an interaction between a human and machine. This was the sort of, this was the fodder. These were the core questions that we were going to go after uh, together. And then I assembled people from all different backgrounds. Um, So I had five different religious backgrounds, the Abrahamic traditions, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, and then uh, atheists as well, and participating in the research. They all went through these questions and had a conversation with different technology entities. So like a a voice uh, assistant, an SMS chat, a web-based chat, and an internet search, and a quest to find answers. And then after they had those conversations with those entities, we debriefed. You know, we debriefed for an hour or two, depending on the person, and discussed kind of what their experience was like, what they thought, how they felt about the interactions, you know, what thoughts came up for them. And uh, in each of the of the sessions against uh, the 10 questions, people in the main, I knew they had uh, told me what affiliation, you know, they were religiously. And so about 60 to 70% of the answers were consistent with their religious affiliation. So if you came in as a, as a Christian, you know, like six or seven of the questions, the answers would be consistent with Christianity. Uh, a couple of them would be from different traditions. 
and one might be from um, a non-religious perspective. And so people had the opportunity to experience answers that would have been consistent with their affiliation and those that were not. And so this was exploring, how does that work? What happens when the machine is telling you something that is in conflict with a, a belief that you hold? And so yeah, each of the participants had, as I said, you know, we got to see kind of did different technology experiences, different ways of presenting the information through AI. How did that feel to them? And did it have an influence? The devices that they used in, in the interaction, did that have an influence in it? Did the voice, like the the normative voice, like if there's sacred text involved in the answer, did that have an impact? Did gender of voice have an impact for them as well? And then also like, you know, how did it work when they got answers that didn't yeah. didn't correlate to their own experience? So the structure, you had different content. Well, you, you had a, a list of content, the, the core questions, and then you had different medium types or media, technical. Right. Did you ask the set of questions to each different medium or did you just, I mean, was it random or how did, how did that work? Yeah, for that one, it was kind of... Uh, split evenly among the different experiences. And so each person would, I didn't go through all the questions on all the devices. It just would have taken too long. So people had the opportunity to, you know, ask one or two questions in each of those contexts. And this, I want to position this because it's post Eliza, which is one of the earliest AI interaction machines where it was just basically psychotherapy on a machine. And people had a very personal reaction to that. It wasn't about religion. It was about, you know, my problems. But it's also pre your study, pre ChatGPT, which is a huge, and maybe it's not as huge. Maybe it isn't really. That would be an interesting follow-up. <laughs> Does this make a difference? But let's talk about what you did find. Um, you went in with assumptions How did they match up with your findings? Did anything surprise you? What were your big takeaways? One thing that was very consistent with the assumptions going in is that people did highly anthropomorphize Mm. the experience. And that's been written about. That's sort of like Andrea Guzman and her work, um, Heidi Campbell and her work. This is pretty consistent on human-machine communication. You'll see people have this, this tendency to do that. And to the point where, you know, if they were interacting with an Amazon Echo device and they were talking to Alexa, you know, through uh, this experience, they would do things like in their way of making meaning, they would say, well, this came from Amazon. This is probably something Jeff Bezos believes. <laughs> They're very logical over there. So this makes sense. And so, and you know, and this is all in the backdrop of knowing that this was a simulation that I had created. I mean, I, because that was, I was very clear about yeah. that in the, in the discussion. And yet those were things that just naturally occurred for people. Like if they were talking to the Google home device, then they had a different kind of perception of like, well, this is coming from Google and this wow. is the Google is like this. And wait, um, stop there for a second. Cause I did not know this, that corporate brand names had an impact on the perception of the information. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. And, and also the the sort of, you know, celebrity CEOs of those yeah. companies had an impact as well. 
And I think it's just that, so there was this very, very strong desire to want to make meaning, almost like, almost like a, you know, like a horoscope. Like you, you want to, to try to understand why you got this information. And in particular, if you got something, if you got an answer that wasn't necessarily consistent with your views, it would, might be like, and people would be like, well, I could see maybe why give me this answer because, you know, I've had questions about this area and I'm not totally sure about it. And, you know, and so the, there was a lot of that kind of thinking through, the why of, of what answer they got and was really one of the more fascinating things to, in the study for me was to hear how people made meaning for themselves and how they answered these questions on their own. So there's a component certainly of their religious beliefs. And then there is this sort of lived part of the spirituality. And so to hear that um, and to hear it from, you know, Muslims and to hear it from Christians and to hear it from Buddhists, and you know, that it was just really interesting to hear how they, how they make meaning and how they employ that in their lives. And so the anthropomorphism, that was a big finding that was kind of expected, but maybe more deeper and, and more nuanced than I anticipated. And then another big finding, and this was not expected at all, was the triggering of memories that people had by the answers they got. And I think this was very much related to religious information, to spiritual information. Like these, very often people would say something like, well, that's something that my grandmother used to say to me all the time, or that's something my father always talked about. And very often when, you know, if these people had been deceased, it was like an emotional kind of experience for people. And so there was a kind of a zone that people got into about these, you know, these are pretty, these are big questions for sure. And, and, but it got very personal mm -hmm. and sort of very nostalgic for a number of people. And it's the place when they had those memories, that's where people tended to show emotion in, in these conversations and in the debriefs. And so that for me was a sign that it's a bit cautionary, right? We're in, now we're into a zone where people are very open. They are feeling emotion. They are open to influence. And so this was a, an interesting yeah. finding along the way. So those two were probably the lead findings in terms of how people related to the machines and the information. And then there were a number of sort of uh, interesting findings around gendered voices. That was pretty interesting. Most of the existing research here says that, that people far prefer female voices and sort of demure female voices in particular. And if you think about all of the default voices, you know, across the cars and um, home assistants and, you know, whether it's Siri or Alexa even, or Cortana names, or what, what even all the names are female. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All of these are, are female and, and that's, you know, that's from research that those companies have done and, and what they found. And, and, you know, one of our research fellows, uh, Robert Garassi, he's done a lot of work on robotics and human machine communication. And one of his claims is that Westerners are more apt to respond well to disembodied experiences like voices, like voices from the cloud, whereas Eastern religions tend to be more connected to physical objects and that the idea that everything has a, a soul or a, or a, an energy to it. And he also kind of talks about, you know, he, he, he would say that, you know, possibly like a male voice for 
Western religions or, or Abrahamic religions might be more powerful than a female voice. As you think about the normative and formal voices that you, that typically right. come um, in those religions. And I found that not to be true at all in terms of like, it was people did not want to hear male voices coming out of these, these devices. Like nobody males or females in the study, regardless of their religious background and affiliation, they did not want it. They just, it sounded too authoritative. It sounded too bossy. It sounded too like dictatorial. How much of that though, is that chicken and egg thing where you, you say that these large companies have done research and have put female voices and therefore we've become accustomed to be female voices in our devices and defaults. And so is there any, well, we can't answer the question, but I raise it. Um, how much of that is you get fed like AI by what you've already done and, and liked. And so you become accustomed. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. There was some research that I looked into uh, DaCosta is a name that, that comes to mind as far as uh, some work there. And it has to do, like, the theory is that it has to do with we, that we would, we prefer these devices to be our assistants. They, mm. We prefer them to be subordinate to us. We, <laughs> ha, we prefer them to be helpers. And unfortunately, like, you know, the, that there's gender stereotypes around those kinds of roles wow. and what people expect. And, What's really interesting about this point is another finding around deference uh, and deference to information that's coming from these devices. So on the one hand, when we think about this idea that there's a preference for these devices to be our helpers and subordinate to us, uh, on the other hand, we have a strong tendency to defer to the information that's coming from them as being true and as being accurate. Mm. And so, you know, this is a really interesting dichotomy, yeah. right? We, on the one hand, we they're subordinate. On the other hand, we think they're superordinate. And so oh, when we come man. to religious information, that's particularly important because, you know, I mean, how many times have you been in a conversation where it's like, well, you know, who holds this record or that record? You know, like, oh, let's look it up. And, and that will break the tie of our conversation, right? And so that carried over to answers to questions that like, in this realm as well, in the existential realm where people say, well, this must be right. This is coming from something, you know, so it's coming from somewhere. This has been thought through. I might just not understand this fully. And so again, if you think about the opportunity for influence and, you know, unfortunately manipulation, this, there is this, this tendency for us to want to defer to the information that's coming from Yeah, man, AI. Shannon, everything you're saying is raising other questions in my mind, not the least of which is, these devices and, and platforms and apps are positioned as augmenting, not replacing, as assistants, as collaborators, et cetera. And that we put them in female voices because that's what we want to hear. And then that speaks volumes into our, you know, implicit biases. And anyway, I don't want to go there because there's a thousand things we could say. I do want to address before we get into that influence thing, because I think I want to really drill in on that. You had mentioned that, interestingly, people had a feeling of privacy while they were doing these questions, even though it wasn't. And the fact that everything they were saying into a machine was going into a giant database, probably training someone else's AI model as they spoke. And I think Joseph Weizenbaum saw this in his Eliza configuration where the, the woman said, please leave the room. I'm going to have a private conversation with this computer. So what did you find 
there and and how how would you what would you make of that it's a really important dynamic and again it's it's sort of there is a dichotomy i mean we we all know that information is being tracked as we kind of do anything online and yet there is this notion that in some ways a conversation with a machine is the most private conversation that you could have as it relates to the work here the thing that really came to the fore was that people felt like even if there was tracking going on that the machine wasn't going to judge them and this was important relative to what they would otherwise experience and so in particular people felt more comfortable having conversations about the big questions about spirituality about religion with the machine because they didn't feel embarrassed to ask a question um they didn't have face that social uncomfortableness of addressing a person and fear of judgment based on their questions in the discussion and so there was this intimacy that came out or this sort of safety that came out in the discussion and many of my participants said well what i you know cuz you know I'm a former like product manager. And so they, like, they wanted to give me, like, I always listen to all of the different ideas they had for products. And they're like, well, what I really want to do is put this device into, they'll say like Buddha mode, for example, and just talk to it about Buddhism or put it in, you know, a Jesus mode or what have you. And, and from a perspective of learning about different views and, Hey, I just wouldn't be comfortable talking to, you know, someone of a different religion and asking them these, these kinds of things. And so there was, and this is, you know, something that starts as far back as like Sherry Turkle and, um, and then, uh, you know, Andrea Guzman, I mentioned earlier, this idea of a metaphysical aspect to machines and in particular, you know, a personal device, like a, a computer, and now especially a phone, people feel like this is something that I have a connection with. I have, you know, it, it's sort of like, like you're saying an augmentation or a, an extension of myself. And they felt like it, it just occupied a, a space for them that was safe, that was without judgment. And again, if you think, if you think about the potential for reaching people for answering some of their deepest questions for providing guidance to them or manipulating them like that. This would be a place of great power. Yeah. Almost like a confessional uh, booth, or I know they had for a while, I'm not sure it's still up, but there was an app that you could go and tell your crime or sin or, you know, deep seated secret and just get it off your chest to some unknown entity without having to actually pay for your sins or your crimes in society or to the person you hurt. So there's a, a kind of an efficacious nature of talking into something that you feel like won't judge you. And I get that. The scariest thing for me is that it isn't private and that this data is collected and that's a whole other podcast. I also want to say, I love this idea of having it be potentially as your findings are made known, companies might say, hey, we can do an application that does go into Buddha mode or Jesus mode to say, I know I'm not going to get somebody else's religious. That's both dangerous and assuring. I don't know. Shannon, we know that AI is already influencing things like shopping and buying and even political beliefs and ideologies. 
But your research suggests that AI holds a similar level of influence in the realm of religious information and knowledge. So sort of a duh, but I mean, tell me what you think the implications are for religious leaders and institutions as to how they might use this power for good, not evil. Because to be honest, if I'm a potential cult leader, this is a very interesting finding. Yeah, I think it's, you know, I think one thing that's clear is attempts to restrict access, you know, to information and technology have largely failed by religious organizations. And so I think the perspective has to be, what are we doing? How is, how are our beliefs showing up in this realm? And what experiences could we provide as well? I think these are questions that religious leaders, you know, should address and, and be aware of, if nothing else. They're, uh, in assembling the materials, you know, f- to create the simulation that I did, there were some faiths were easier than others, I'll say, to to sort of put together, you know, a set of answers and train a model and all that kind of stuff. And and I think it's just, you know, I would say that the, the most important thing is for r- religious leaders to become aware of what the presence of their faith is online and to you know, my, my advice would be to be proactive in this space and to provide experiences. And we've seen some groups do this, but I think the approach of sort of trying to, you know, steer people away from AI in general is going to fail. I mean, we see, we've seen like how quickly chat GPT has, has come on and yeah. how many, you know, hundreds of millions of people are using that so quickly. And they've done some very hard thinking about what types of content they provide and what they don't. And so if it, right now you have the, the sort of avoidance strategy there. Like if you ask something about religion, if you ask something about even existential questions, you often get the, Hey, I'm, I'm just a, a demo for, <laughs> you know, open AI. Uh, we're not talking about that kind of right. stuff. And so they've avoided it, but that information is in their model, in their large language model. They just happen to be quarantining off different pieces, you know, based on the questions that are coming in. And so they do, there is a model that would answer these kinds of questions in different contexts. And yeah. I think uh, religious leaders ought to be proactive in understanding how this will unfold for yeah, them. Yeah. And that raises is the issue of all the different iterations and applications of uh, generative large language model AI coming from different companies. Like you go back to the brand name, if you Google it, is it different from if you put it into Bing and or just some generic somebody's website that's a Buddhist website or a Christian website or a Jewish website? What gets fed into the model is what comes out, right? And so there's this behind the scenes or under the hood programming, we'll call it programming, but it's basically data that you put in. And interestingly, Shannon, I've tried a couple of chat GPT prompts on the gospel, for example, and got back basically what I would have said. It didn't dodge the question in any way, and it gave a solid Christian answer. But I know that people have said, I put this in chat GPT and it wouldn't answer it. I've never had that experience, but maybe I'm not using it enough or my prompts aren't weird enough. <laughs> maybe, maybe your questions are, are so good natured that you don't have I'm not threatening a in a political way. <laughs> right. Oh my gosh. Well, so yeah. let's, let's kind of land on the many ways that we can receive religious information. And, and I would say AI is perhaps, at least lately, the most intriguing, especially in light of those large language models and other generative AI. 
But Christians have always believed in the reality and power of divine revelation through direct communication from God, scripture, traditions, prophecy, the incarnation of Jesus, apostles, etc. Finally, the church. Is AI a new way for God to speak to humanity, or is it just an old way with a new tool? I think you could argue it either way. In the same way, you could say, hey, there, you know, as there are lots and lots of books written that you could read or not read, uh, you know, there's access to the theological thinking and the ideas, you know, in many ways. I think what is new is the unstructured way in which people can ask these questions and the sort of limitless potential for that. Like if you, you could spend a lot of time, you know, talking to your religious leader, but that's always going to be finite. This is, this is not. And so I think people will, will tend to be, to get deeper. They will tend to get more, more intimate. They'll tend to get, they'll tend to feel safer in, in these discussions. And so I do think it's a, what I would predict is that it's a way for people to explore more than they have before, because it's just, um, it feels like it's less conforming to some structure that someone's made, which is a little bit deceptive because, but you, you can even see it if you play with chat GPT or with, you know, the Bing interface now, you know, and Bing is a particularly interesting to play with because you get to see the sort of traditional web answers and the new way of AI answering. And so, you know, on, I'll say like on the left-hand side, you you get the list of links and (laughs) and all of the sourcing, right. And on the right-hand side, you get just some text as an, as a sort of a human readable answer. And so those things have different, a different feel to them, right? One thing you can see is clearly there's some kind of hierarchy. You, you kind of understand the ordering in which it's, there's some order that's being applied to it. There's ads, you know, interlaced in it. So, you know, something's going on there. The other one is less certain of where it's coming from. In some ways it feels more authoritative. And so again, I think you, you run into this this idea of deference, this idea, your agency is a little bit diminished in a sense in that you, you feel like this is the one, this is the right. answer that's, that's coming to yeah, me. Yeah, that's actually very interesting. And it also triggers a thought in my mind about prayer, which is a way that people have gone to God to ask questions before. And with AI, you can ask those questions and get an immediate answer, kind of like an eight ball, which has been a metaphor used before which takes, in some ways, the mystery of God out of the equation. I think we've swapped in our idea of needing efficiency and answers and solid information, and God has always held back a lot from humanity. He can't give us all. It's like, you can't handle the truth kind of thing. But where does that sort of mystery and prayer and obedience and faith get moved when we put our religious questions to AI instead of God, or I don't know, maybe it's not instead of God. That gets to the root of the question, you know, is AI a new way for God to speak to humanity? Does he have control over that too? Or are we suddenly moving into a, now we control all the answers? I think it's a really interesting question. I mean, in a sense, you know, ritual is really important to a lot of the ways that people experience their spirituality. There's some of the work that I read, you know, talks about how people, when they pray or they meditate and they are, they are with a sacred book that they have with them, 
that that adds a significant dimension to the experience mm. for them. And so reading the same thing on a digital device is not the same experience for people, but, you know, where is that coming from? Is that, you know, is that because, you know, books have been around for thousands of years, like we, you know, phones have not like, you know, is there, is there a point in time where that experience with a digital device or information that's coming from a digital device is, is similar, Well, it, but that's yeah. kind of get back to also translations of the Bible for in Christian faith in terms of like some people just say the, the King James Bible is the only Bible you should read because it's authoritative and so on. But real quick before we go on and we got to wrap up pretty soon. I just want to talk to you all day, Shannon. Was there a favorite or preferred device or medium that you found people responded to more favorably? Yeah, this is interesting. I mean, it's definitely the phone was the preferred device. The phone was something that something that transcended uh, like a business or work or personal and personal context. You know, in large part, computers were very much seen as a a productivity device, a a work device uh, that was like a professional sort of space. And so it was it was a little bit tough for people to use the computer and the computer screen as uh, in this context. The voice assistants had interesting sort of, they were very polarizing. People either really liked them or they didn't. There was a great deal of um, mistrust about these home devices, you know, the the Echo devices, the Google Home devices. And it's interesting because, you know, from a technical perspective, like your phone has a microphone, it's, you know, it's always <laughs> on. It could be, you know, like, but, but people don't, people don't think about the phone as being as much of a surveillance device as say like a, a home assistant, which was, I found to be quite fascinating. But yeah, the, um, to answer your question, it was the phone felt like the thing that was always with you. It, uh, like Muslims, for example, felt like in my study that, you know, Hey, this, you know, this requirement of praying five times a day and like that, like this, this could help in this way. I could have a, I could take a few minutes, even if I'm at work, I could sort of do my prayer in this way. This could be very helpful for me. There are other devices did not uh, seem to to fall into that. And when you that capability. when you say the phone, would that be talking to the phone or texting on the phone um, or searching? In, in my, I don't know. In my experiment, it was it was texting, hmm. but you could easily. And I and I think for some reason that that texting interface, that SMS interface, also felt for people to be the most useful like and and this was an this was an interesting finding as well is that like in some ways the most simple interface and the interface that is most commonly associated with people texting you (laughs) was the thing that felt most personal most intimate most useful for people okay that's fascinating to me just it raises a whole bunch of questions that we do not have time to talk about but what's next for you Shannon you've had a, an interesting past this was an interlude now you have your PhD did this study prompt anything that you want to look at next or uh, is there more research on the horizon or or what are you what are you going to do next yeah i'm i'm sort of sorting that out right now um i don't have a specific answer i do think Teaching has been a passion for me as well. I think that's that's a that's a, a potential direction. If I were to extend the research, like I said, maybe longitudinally taking a look at uh, some of the the, the people again, um, the space of memories and you know how to, how people form memories and 
even like in the space of sort of dementia, like it really is interesting, I think would be interesting to look at religious memories and the way that technology interacts with them. Wow. Yeah. Those are a couple of ideas for, for future projects uh, for me. But I'm also I'm also spending a lot of time with um, responsible innovation labs, and we're we're creating guidelines for startup uh, technology startups mainly on how to develop artificial intelligence responsibly and ways to to um, to think about your business models early and the data that you're using early and the biases that could be involved in it. And so those are I've got you know hands in kind of a few different places where I, where I'm thinking about yeah. next. This seems like a perfect dissertation to bring to the party, as it were. Um, It isn't specific on, you know, technical innovation, but it certainly does give a window into influence and meaning making and these kinds of things, which are all important in other A applications besides religion and spirituality. So, so I think this is awesome. I like to end with book recommendations these days, both for me and for our listeners, because I'm constantly amazed at what I didn't know about and therefore should have read but didn't. As you alluded to earlier, you know, I, I started on a rabbit trail or I started pulling threads and realized, hey, I should read that person. So what are two or three books that have influenced you and your work that you could recommend to our audience and why? Sure. Sure. Can I, can I do a few more? Does it have to be two or no, three? No, you can do as many as you want. Everyone says <laughs> that. It's like, it's like, what's your favorite song? I don't have one favorite song. <laughs> yeah. I think relative to the work, you know, in the, in if specific to the work here, Meredith McGuire and her book called lived religion was pretty influential for me in terms of this is the, this is going to be the spirituality rooted in the individual and weaving a fabric throughout your life of spirituality. That's very much her view a, a sociologist view of how people develop this. You know, it's influenced also quite a lot by feminist theology. And so the idea of how do you reconcile, you know, things that come from, you know, what can be a heavily patriarchal organization and how do you make meaning in your own life and implement it in your life. So I think Meredith McGuire lived religion. The other side of that coin for me in the work was Donald Carson, this book called Gagging of God, which looks at pluralism and Christianity in particular. And sort of, this is the, how do we think about external influences? You know, should we just kind of go back to scripture and just look at scripture and all the answers are there? Um, And so he provides a a great counterpoint to McGuire. I think moving into the technology space, Andrea Guzman, um, she has a book called Human Machine Communications. You know, this is really core to a lot of the assumptions that I had, you know, going into how will people interact with, with these machines? Um, and then how do we inject religious information? We talked a lot about the ARCS group. And so Helen Cameron talking about God in practice, that's the book there that she and her colleagues put out about the the four voices um, and encapsulates that. I think that's, that's really an interesting view as into theological reflection. And then I'll put in a plug for my advisor as well, Eric Stoddart. Um, he has a new book called The Common Gaze. And Eric is, his focus is on surveillance and spirituality and religion. And so he does a beautiful job, I think, of, of talking about, um, as, we were, as we were mentioning, sort of data collection in this world and how does it relate to scripture? How does it relate to ideas, ancient ideas that we've had? And, you know, the, at the highest level, sort of this, the idea of, you know, the gaze of God, you know, being this, this very 
far-reaching, omnipotent sort of surveillance. And so how do people behave in that context wow. and how do they behave in the digital gaze context? So we'll end with those. You know, and that ending is interesting because one of the things I've often thought about AI is that, and the companies that make it is they know everything about us and they might use it for ill. God knows everything about us and he loves us. And that's comforting to me. But Shannon Betcher, this has been so fascinating. It's prompted a lot of deep thinking on AI and religion for me, and I hope our listeners as well. So thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Gretchen. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at beatriceinstitute.org. That's beatriceinstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Go with God.